Hello everyone, welcome back to the Deep Learning Crowd podcast. On episode 6, we'll be joined by our next guest, Faras Latehouse. Faras is a spokesperson and co-founder of the Volkswagen Group AI team, where he is the deep learning expert at the Data Lab in Munich. A very experienced individual who has been working in the industry for over 15 years. Because of this, we talk about AI as a whole. We'll also be discovering how AI has changed and how it's changing at the moment and discussing some interesting problems and solutions we are facing. Faras knows a good team when he sees one, so we'll be diving into leading an AI team and how it's good to define individual roles and the importance of it. Also be able to share some guidance for any young or entry-level professionals looking to get into data or AI. I hope you enjoy the show as much as I did. Sit back, relax, enjoy the show. It's good to have you amongst the crowd. Welcome, Faras. It's good to have you here. Thanks for having me. Excellent. So I'd like for our listeners to really understand who I'm speaking with and uh, the background of the individual. So just to give a quick overview of what you do for us, just so our listeners understand. Yeah, sure. Uh, my current position is the head of deep learning expert center, the Volkswagen Group. And in that role, my task is to turn AI into revenue or to save costs. And I'm on the applied side of AI, so so it's basically building products, uh, having having a team that uh, that develops uh, products uh, that looks at the life cycle, and we are active in all kinds of areas really of the Volkswagen Group, whether it's in production, sales, after sales, autonomous driving, HR, finance, uh, you name it. Excellent. Okay. So as well, just to add a little bit of a background to it. So how did you get into the position you are now? What's your sort of expertise and where do you come from? Oh, well, uh, that was quite a journey. I, I started with a with a degree in psychology, uh, did my master's there and, and always had a focus on data, really statistics and uh, mathematical psychology. And I always felt that I had to go into the applied domain. So uh, the first step was that I didn't do that. I went into basic research, worked in neuroscience, did that for a while. And and uh, during that time, I had to do a lot of programming and come up with, with uh, tools that would that would work, that I could utilize for my aims and research. And eventually I decided to quit and to become a student again. So I did a degree in computer science at uh, University of Birmingham, uh, UK and that provided me with the skill set I needed really for my next step. So I, during my psychology degree, I'd learned how to interpret data, how to model data, but I had sort of half knowledge uh, when it came down to building the tools. And after that degree, I was also on the tool side of it. And so I felt sort of whole, <laughs> if you want to say <laughs> so. And I continued in that area. And so after a while of the as a software developer, I joined uh, the German Aerospace Center, where I did a lot of applied research. Uh, I also developed a lot. I brought eye tracking into the automotive domain, but I really did uh, really everything apart from energy. <laughs> so space, uh, aviation, automotive, uh, transportation in general, uh, railways. So yeah, it was it was actually quite diverse, quite interesting. I also operated at different levels, did that for 10 years, and then eventually decided that I had seen enough in that area. And I gave in to Audi and was tasked with bringing AI or bringing machine learning into automated driving, which I did. I had a, a, the competence center for machine learning uh, in the domain of automated driving. 
And yeah, and that turned out to be quite successful. And after three years, I, I eventually made the step to, to move up to the group level so that it would not just be Audi that I would sort of be linked to, but all the other 12 or 13 brands as well. And what I found quite fascinating is that you, that you find data everywhere. So what I learned in the automotive domain was also something I could then apply to areas of after-sales, sales, production, and so on. Because uh, in the end, it's just data. <laughs> you just have to reduce it uh, to what it is. And, and then it's easier to sort of come up with uh, solutions for problems. And this is what I'm doing now. So yeah, look, you've got a really good amount of experience. So that's why I really wanted to have a chat with you. Someone who's got the expertise, probably been in nearly all the positions leading up to being a head of the department, for example, for a particular area like deep learning. So today for the listeners, we thought it would be a good idea to sort of talk about AI in general, go through some topics about AI, some of the things we may be facing and look at some of the solutions. So from a general aspect, I thought it would be interesting to for the listeners to hear from your side for us. So look, you clearly know data and AI. I'm sure you have like a your sort of opinion of what it all is. But for you, like, how, how have you seen AI change over the recent years, or and how do you see it changing maybe in the near future as well? Yeah, that was that was quite a change uh, in in recent years. It started as a sort of a research topic that actually a lot of people found uncool it was it was not a cool <laughs> thing at all to be in ai and you were lacking the processing powers so computers were, were sort of still very slow especially when it came down to deep learning uh, but also the the use cases were were rather small and and uh, there was always this link missing in terms of turning it into a software product and uh, that changed over time when more processing power became available certain algorithms could actually be executed and uh, suddenly it was perceived as something very powerful something very useful uh, during my time in britain i i learned what you could actually do with ai um, i also saw that it could easily be turned into money and when i uh, returned to germany i i noticed that certain conditions weren't there yet. There was not enough infrastructure. The mindset was different. And, uh, and I saw that changing over time. So eventually after, after like 10, 10 years or so, I could actually apply what I had learned during my computer science degree. And that was quite fascinating because I was sort of, I felt that there was sort of a mental traffic jam that I had to hold back. And once the infrastructure was there and the mindset was there and uh, and uh, I was given green light, I, yeah, I just continued and switched to full steam. And uh, this is what I'm doing until now. Amazing. So like in terms of AI and uh, how it sort of developed and changed, like where do you think some of the key things, maybe like so cloud has played a huge role in storage for AI, would you say as well? Yeah, absolutely. It's so easy nowadays to just rent some instances on a cloud and just get going. This is something that made it really easier, especially when it comes down to deploying your AI products uh, and also looking at the entire life cycle. So, uh, so that has clearly changed. It's, it uh, has shifted sort of from that domain of academia into industry. And it has also become uh, discernible that, that you need an entire team around that. So, so it's not enough to just have people from AI or data scientists. You need uh, an entourage of software engineers, people who enable product and people who can also look at the entire DevOps and uh, MLOps path. And, and that has clearly changed. Uh, what we see is that, uh, that an entire data industry has been created. 
with all these attributes that that are linked to that, uh, whether it's annotations, um, infrastructure, and so on. So I think a lot of things have become possible. And since we are dealing with data, it means that we also look at a network, that we look at a certain level of density that that hasn't been reached yet, but we can reduce things to sort of data handling. And that makes it very fascinating because this this brings together several domains and the number and the type of products you can develop based on that is sheer limited. So obviously AI has accelerated over the last well, maybe decade or so. Like I feel like it's become so common and there's so many companies like accounting software firms and stuff like that most companies now are implementing ai into their products so there's clearly a, a huge advancement i can see it continue to propel and grow and i see a really bright future for um, artificial intelligence in general but obviously with growth there's always going to be problems that we may face problems which maybe have solutions for but what sort of problems do you think we are facing with artificial intelligence at the moment i think at the moment we haven't reached the full potential yet. At the same time, there's still this magical cloud around AI. And I'm not sure whether AI deserves that, but, but it's definitely something that uh, sort of needs to be sort of grounded. Uh, so AI is data, AI is statistics to me. And I actually don't like the term AI. I prefer machine learning. <laughs> I think what we see at the moment is lots of talking about AI and the potential. And when it comes down to the potential, people usually refer to the threats. And But what I see really is that, that in the end, we are going to find AI everywhere. So AI is going to be sort of something that we won't see anymore. It will become very normal. It will be something that is integrated in things. And we just have to work on making that possible. And that means infrastructure, 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 connectivity. And we also need a closer link between universities and the industry, because sometimes I feel that certain universities are sort of lacking behind, that the industry has got a very clear demand of what's required, is partially struggling with filling the role, uh, sort of uh, replacing the flaws of university, uh, making graduates sort of fit for purpose in the industry. And and this is also what we're trying to do. We're trying to fill this gap and we would send employees into very bespoke trainings in order to satisfy the need for, for what we need in terms of uh, developers. And there's a lot ongoing at the moment, but what I quite like is that that the mindset is is sort of going in the right direction. What we saw in the beginning was was almost a clash of generations. People from from mechanical engineering, from electrical engineering, with sort of an older mindset versus uh, computer scientists. People from electrical engineering who had been working in computer science already, and uh, it has become obvious that that in the end the focus has to be on computer science, has to be on data. And this transformation towards this sort of new domain still ongoing. Absolutely. So there obviously will will encounter problems, some things that I've noticed with AI. For example, AI can be implemented in automation tools. Automation tools can be used in recruitment. 
I know there are some certain automation tools as well. For our listeners, they'll probably be very curious, but there are, and it's been implemented in many industries, but I feel like sometimes with artificial intelligence, with automation anyway, it can sort of lack the quality, maybe because it's quite early on and I'm not really sure from the recruitment perspective as well. But you briefly touched on it earlier. I think, I can't remember when you said it, but you you mentioned MLOps. This is a topic which is booming right now. And a lot of people are interested to go into this direction as a career. I've got two or three positions at the moment that I'm actively working for MLOps engineers. It's quite a generic term. I've under, I've recently understood that. It's quite a widespread position. So you have to really narrow it down by a lot of other things within a JD, for example. But what do you think about the whole MLOps and or productionization of machine learning, for example? And what do you think of the importance of getting this right? or have it you're using this within data and ml uh, we are using it on a daily basis i mean mlops is is a crucial part of this entire ai product uh, development cycle put it that way it's necessary it's a role that uh, or it's a domain that that born out of devops which is sort of an indicator really that AI has arrived in the domain of uh, software development, which is a good sign. And uh, since there's a huge demand for experts in MLOps, it just shows you that uh, the message has arrived. The potential has been recognized to, to turn AI into money. And an indicator for that is a really MLOps. It's also the number of MLOps experts you would have at a company. And, and just something that is necessary. The thing is, if when new data are coming into a system, you just need to monitor for things like data shift, concept drift, you name it. And, and uh, you can't just have an AI product that you place somewhere and then don't take care of it. Uh, simply requires a lot of TLC, a technical TLC. And, and, and this is just something that has been understood and uh, more and more companies are uh, ramping up in that area. Do you think it's quite important for, well, let's just uh, use your, where you are our example at Volkswagen. Do you have specialist engineers who just do purely MLOps and focus on the productionization and the process? Or do you have like your data scientist doing a bit of MLOps as well? Like, do you think it's important to do, have a specialist or, and how do you do it in where you are? We have both. Uh, so obviously we, we went through a transition phase. In the beginning, we, we had a lot of experts who were involved in various areas who had to work in different roles. But as you grow, you just realize that one person can't replace five experts, uh, at least not in the long run. And and then uh, we started specifying roles and we started hiring for MLOps experts specifically for, for people who are cloud engineers with a view on AI, full stack developers with experience in the area uh, of AI especially machine learning, deep learning, NLP. And uh, this is how, how it sort of comes together. It, it's something where you just need to find the right mixture. You, you need to uh, find out how the team is sort of communicating, uh, what the aim is. And uh, then, of course, you need people who have that role of sort of being the connectors between the different domains. And this is sort of in the flow. <laughs> this will always be something that is flowing and needs to be adapted depending on on the use case uh, on the product and what we also see is that uh, sometimes we take care of certain products but we would also let go and uh, hand over to devops centers for example who would then uh, take care of that in the long run 
how um, how big do you think MLOps will eventually be? Do you think it will reach the heights of DevOps? I think uh, MLOps will always be part of DevOps, and eventually, uh, I think people will not really differentiate between the two terms anymore because once you have a software product it's a devops and and if a devops is sort of seasoned with mlops that's not a problem it would uh, i think just be a a a, a semantic discussion really <laughs> so once you have a software product it's, it's a devops and the domain is still growing so i understand okay so uh, well relating a step back we was obviously talking about some of the problems facing with ai with every problem there is a solution so from your perspective what are some of the solutions that we could expect within data ml ai that would help us potentially understand all this automation and the ai or the data etc in my view we will experience that that things run more smoothly and won't really show up as being AI, but so ideally we won't really notice that that AI is integrated into a system or, or that we are using AI. Things just work. They improve at some point. In the end, it's about making making transitions possible, having a technical solutions that, that would, for example, work hand in hand with humans, systems that would adapt, systems where, where you don't really have to think too hard about using it especially when it comes down to usability for example it should all be human-centered and and this this human-centered approach is mainly possible through ai so by reading humans predicting humans behavior and this is of course a a very special domain and when it comes down to autonomous driving for example it will be something that will just blend in or that that blends in already do you think explainable AI will be one of the best solutions for problems that we may face with AI as well? I think it's always a good thing if you can explain things, if you have transparency. That that also takes away a certain concerns because usually people are afraid of things they don't understand or things that are sort of foreign. And what I like to do is to take away this opaqueness, this magical mist, so that it becomes clear that it's just about data it's about models based on data that we can steer and control an awful lot with data and by by increasing uh, the level of explainability we also enable systems and uh, and also allow systems to be augmented with ai the nice thing is if you if you have a system that runs in a very stable manner but would require some uh, some additional ai you need to focus on explainability in order to keep a certain uh, certifications of systems. Now, you you should not sort of modify them too much. And uh, if you modify systems, then it should be clear what was modified. And so from that direction, it's necessary to, to focus on explainable AI or interpretable AI uh, in order to make it work. Absolutely. Okay. So... Look, you're in your position, you are in the situation where you're able to manage and lead teams. And it looks like you've been doing that for quite a long time. So quite a good amount of experience in leadership qualities. So you've probably seen different types of AI teams, obviously separated in different titles, different responsibilities. So as a leader, having seen this perspective, how important is it to um, understand the differences within the AI teams for example, titles and responsibilities? Um, it's very important. 
Uh, roles are very important. Um, so are aims. Once you have the right mixture of people who are actually able to focus on the task rather than themselves, that's half of the finish line, really. What's what's really poisonous if you if you if you find yourself in a in a situation where you lead a team with big egos, that's usually the beginning of the end. So it's important <laughs> to find people who who are very focused on the task, who who understand that coming up with an AI product is team achievement, and that everybody has got a certain role within that team. And that it's down to a team atmosphere and team effort. So what I want to specifically refer to is the challenge that that we had during a certain transition phase where when people come from academia, this is where they are trained. This is where they would make their first steps when it comes down to research. But what they don't learn in academia is being a team player. They are in combat mode, in PhD mode. They learn that uh, they have very personal KPIs and and there are no KPIs for, for being a team player. And, and this is what what's different in industry where you uh, need to collaborate. This is, I think, a challenge that most people face when they make that, that transition from academia into industry. And this is then what, what has to be replied to and also addressed by leadership. How, is, um, how have you got on with leading teams throughout the COVID situation? But I'm trying to focus on is how you lead teams remotely and how the, because I can only imagine it could be slightly difficult because communication is not always going to be the uh, number one thing you can do as quickly, as efficiently as face to face. So how have you found remote work and leadership as well? Uh, it's actually the other way around. It's uh, what I have experienced is that that communication is, is extremely important. And since we are all working remotely at the moment, we communicate a lot. And since we have one video call after the other, one, one a project session after the other, the density of communication has gone up. So what, what I feel and also what my team feels is that we have become even more efficient, that we talk even more and that, that we have increased our focus. And um, so in a way, uh, the whole corona situation has, has really helped us to, to sort of sharpen our focus uh, to, to think about certain, certain collaboration models. And we are more efficient than ever before that's uh, really good to hear and I, for any like startups listening to this as well I think uh, I deal with a lot of clients who are slightly concerned with remote because obviously they want to make sure that communication is so important especially for someone who's starting a new business as well and getting employees it might be a worrying task knowing that they're not going to be around them all the time and you're not the first person to mention that remote work has actually been beneficial rather than uh, detrimental to the team's performance it's really nice to hear that do you think i'm not sure if you can make the the final decision on this but do you think remote work is going to be an option after the covid break uh, or after it's all sort of finished yes definitely it it has been decided recently that 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 at Volkswagen uh, employees can work up to four days per week from home which is the right step really since people have just uh, they have sort of arranged with the situation they and they have their workplace at home and and 
And of course, there are certain certain topics that you wouldn't really want to discuss by a video call. And um, but at the moment, we we are in home office with one hundred percent. But after Corona, we will provide the option uh, to work from home four days a week. Amazing. It's good to hear that the larger companies are implementing this and it should hopefully follow with the smaller and medium sized companies as well. I just think uh, I'm sure you could agree as a startup, maybe they probably get a little bit concerned due to the distance between the communication. So you obviously deal with a lot of younger professionals as well within your teams, probably people who have come from graduating and stuff like that. A lot of the demographic of the listeners are younger in this audience of the deep learning crowd as well. What sort of guidance would you offer to these uh, young people entering the world of data or AI, for example? Uh, what's, what's really important is to have a sound understanding of data um, and of mathematics. Uh, mathematics is, is not uncool, it's actually very cool. It's, it's required, it's essential, and it makes the difference. Um, so... So if I would be at the end of my school career now and just sort of just, just pass my A-levels and I would have to pick a, a subject at university, I think I would pick uh, mathematics or data science or even computer science with a focus on data science. That's step number one. So basically understanding the basics and get it right. And once, once I feel comfortable with that, uh, I would then make the next step and look at how I would or what I would need in order to apply my knowledge, what I would need to build tools that allow me to build AI products. So I go into software development and then get as much as experience as possible. Go from one startup to the other, join larger companies, um, suppliers, look into different contexts of application, work in smaller teams, in bigger teams, develop an understanding for customer service, for customer-focused development. Go out in the world and experience different collaboration cultures, I would say. And especially when the heat is on, you need to understand the culture around you and also the culture that each individual has. So culture is something I would not link to country, but to people. Yeah, and I think after a while, if you feel ready, if you have also experienced your own limits and you understand uh, how you function under stress, whether you turn into a nasty person or whether you stay calm, whether you feel that you become sort of a cooler within the team or whether you are the, a person who, who turns, into, uh, turns into kicking mode. This is something you need to experience yourself in order to, to turn into a self-reflected person. Because once you work on, on uh, projects and products that, that, um, that are worth millions, you should not be surprised how you uh, react and behave in certain situations under stress. And you should also not be surprised how your environment uh, behaves under pressure and, and, and uh, stress. So uh, this is what I would sort of call the learning path. And then you're ready. Then you can apply to Volkswagen. <laughs> Yeah, you heard it here, folks. <laughs> okay, yeah, you get that's a really nice overview, and I'm hoping that the listeners, even though the listeners may have already done their degrees and stuff like that, I'm sure there's courses and foundations to understand certain uh, aspects of data as well. What about um, just because you are? I'm sure there are also a lot of leaders or owners of companies potentially listen to this podcast as well. Is there any advice that you'd give to uh, for for your leadership qualities and any advice in leadership in general? Uh, try to form a vision and a mission. Very important. Uh, be able to take yourself sort of back 
remove yourself from the uh, cycle of attention and be open. What I found was that that sometimes it requires a certain level of acceptance and tolerance towards your environment in order to make things work. Regardless of how many trainings you've gone through or books you've read, um, in the end it's important how you behave and, and how you lead, um, how you give, give sort of a brace to your team in order to, to reach your aim, to focus and help people focusing. And I think a lot of senior experts who, who turn into leaders find it difficult to, to let this expert role go. So what I observed is that some senior experts still think they, they sort of have to compete with their most senior experts in the team. And that is a huge mistake. So uh, getting this sort of uh, flipping the switch, getting it right, and uh, also understanding that you're not an expert anymore, meaning you you turn sort of passive, you understand your domain, you understand your team, uh, you can you can assess topics, you can make decisions, and you can ask the right questions, but you should not uh, sort of interfere with your senior experts' decisions. So that's the advice that I would like to give. That's some really, really good advice. I like what you're saying there. And I'm sure that this happens in the workspace quite a lot, especially with that the expert part of someone stepping up into leadership. That expert might step on the toes. Uh, sorry, that new leader might step on the toes of the other experts when he should really be focusing on the bigger picture rather than uh, what the other guys are doing on the particular project or uh, the AI they're developing or etc. But look, for us, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. I really like what we, what we was able to talk about today. I had to pick your brains. I wanted our listeners to hear what you got to say because of how, how much good experience you have in the industry. But yeah, it's been, a, it's been a really good talk with you and I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thank you very much, Reese. No problem. Well, thank you guys for listening and uh, you can check out for us on LinkedIn. I'll attach all his uh, stuff on the uh, summary. Uh, but yeah, take care guys and uh, thank you very much for us. Mm-hmm.